Well, good morning, church. Uh, I hope that you're uh, enjoying some time with uh, family and friends. And, uh, you know, as much as I truly miss uh, being in a room full of people, it really does encourage my heart to think about you gathering together, uh, perhaps with a friend, uh, a roommate, uh, members of your family, and uh, really investing some time, devoting some time to getting into God's Word. And right now, I mean, life is crazy, isn't it? Uh, it is, um, it, it just changes every day. It's very disruptive. It's, it's really hard for us to get in routines and rhythms. And so this is actually very helpful for me, just week in and week out, to think about us getting together around uh, the scriptures. I read a fascinating article this, uh, this last week written by Carl Truman, and he was reflecting on what Christians might learn from this global crisis. And I realized there's, there's just a lot that we don't know right now, but uh, certainly we can and will learn some things. Here's one thing he says is obvious. The levels of general panic indicate that few of us have been properly prepared for the reality of our own mortality. He likened our situation to uh, being mugged by threatening circumstances. And those circumstances are foreign to uh, a remarkably comfortable way of life that we enjoy in the West. So all of us are probably a little off balance, just kind of wondering what do we do with these circumstances. It feels like being mugged. So interesting. I I didn't know this as I began the article, but he cites today's passage and says that uh, this passage actually serves as a bit of a model for how we might navigate these seasons that we're in, this, this incredible moment that we're facing. Here's what he says, and this is in your notes as well. Grim as it sounds... It is the task of the church to fight not so much against physical plagues, which come and go, but rather against that which Leszek Kolakowski dubbed the age of analgesics. Man, that's a great phrase. The church is certainly to help people to live, but to live in the shadow of mortality. That shadow is ominous right now. But certainly Christ followers ought to be able to bring light into those dark places. We, we ought to be equipped to walk in the light, even when everyone around us might be facing a lot of darkness, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. My prayer is that as we get into Luke 13 uh, this morning, that we will all be better equipped to do just that in the days ahead. So our passage begins with a group of people who are triggered by tragedy. We can certainly relate, but look at verse 1 in chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now let me give you just a little bit of of backdrop here. This is yet another spontaneous interruption to Jesus' teaching. Going back to the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus has been in a long discourse and there have been a few interruptions and this is just one more. 
back in chapter 12, verse 54, he had just rebuked the crowds for doing a better job of interpreting the weather uh, than in interpreting the times of God's redemptive activity, like him being right in front of them and them not recognizing that. He rebuked them for that. Then he went on to urge them to get right with their accuser. Obviously, he's speaking metaphorically, but get right with their accuser before facing their judge. Um, The idea is that they should be reconciled with God while they have opportunity to do so. And and so you might think that in that moment, those are some heavy words, that's very confrontational language, and you might think in that moment that they would go, well, how do I do that? (laughs) You know, like I wanna know, that sounds pretty serious. But instead, there's this group of people who bring some breaking news to Jesus. It's not at all obvious uh, what prompted these people to share this news with Jesus, but the scene must have gotten very dark and heavy in just a moment. I mean, a, a black cloud could have just rolled right in. They brought news of a bloody massacre. Jews executed by Roman soldiers while offering sacrifices to God. It's the shadow of mortality. It is death in their faces, front and center. Now, what Jesus does in this moment is surprising and instructive. It may be one of the greatest life lessons we could ever learn. His perspective is so different than ours But it is so important if we're going to live a life in the shadow of our mortality. Look at verse 2. Let's see how Jesus responds. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, at first glance, this seems a a little bit insensitive or just kind of abrupt. Like you hear news of this tragedy and you would expect Jesus perhaps to really console, like just kind of bring a lot of compassion to this crowd. They, they must have been stunned by this news. But instead, he offers them a different way of thinking about, of viewing this tragedy that has been uh, mentioned. Now, we don't know the motives, as I mentioned a minute ago, um, for why these folks shared this with Jesus. There's a possibility that they were trying to kind of rouse him up a little bit to, to see how he might respond with an oppressive government who has come in and maliciously killed uh, members of the Jewish community. Uh, they might have wanted to see if Jesus would respond to injustice, perhaps with an equal measure of violence. But instead of addressing the cultural political question, and, and there's, 
There's a time for that. There's a time for those kinds of conversations. But instead of doing that, Jesus shifts the focus to something of far greater significance. Jesus asks some questions to help not only those people who brought the news, but all of the crowd who may be blind to their own need. He's trying to help them see their need, perhaps as clear as ever. Now, let me highlight something here. I want you to notice two tragedies that are mentioned in the text. One is presented by the group that's in the crowd. The other is mentioned by Jesus himself. That first tragedy is the massacre of those Galileans by Pilate's soldiers who were in the act of offering sacrifices. Uh, We don't have any extra biblical information about this uh, occurrence. All we have is the biblical text. Um, We don't know what prompted Pilate or his soldiers to take this violent action. Obviously, as we read through our New Testament, we know that there were plenty of opportunities for tension between Rome and Israel. Having said that, though, uh, it it seems unprovoked. It it seems uh, just incredibly unexpected and violent. And yet it is what it is. Then Jesus mentions another tragedy. And who knows what prompted him to do that, but he mentions there were 18 people in Jerusalem near the pool of Siloam and a tower fell. There's no explanation for why. It just, it fell and it crushed those 18 people beneath it and took their lives. The first tragedy is an act of malice. The second tragedy is a case of misfortune. Both of them are surprising and disturbing, but don't we all, regardless of which kind, don't we all begin to ask one very penetrating question? Why? Why did this happen? Like, wouldn't we feel better if we could just answer that? If we could just know the cause? And, you know, it might be that if we could have the cause, we might be able to avoid it. But we live in a broken, sin-wrecked world. And perhaps even knowing the cause of this might never change future circumstances. We still live in the shadow of our mortality. So we ask, why did it happen? They, they may go a step further. They may say, why did it happen to those people? Or perhaps even further, they may say, why did it not happen to other people? So they're beginning to compare groups of people that were around this tragedy. And lastly, they may have asked, why didn't God stop it? I mean, these are Jews. These are his people. Why would God allow a tragedy like that among his own people? There was an assumption that many made in that culture and probably still do today. It it probably falls under the umbrella of karma, but here it is. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. Now, obviously, they're they're putting themselves in a different category, right? It didn't happen to me. So I'm not in that group. That's kind of how sometimes we navigate 
these troubling circumstances. As I mentioned, this is a common perspective. Uh, even the disciples of Christ, this is in John 9, 2, as they were walking with him, they came across a man who had been born blind. And they start asking those questions, why? Why him? I wonder if he did something wrong. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. See, they didn't have a category for him being born blind simply because we live in a sin-wrecked world. They needed causation that had something to do with his behavior or that of his family. Well, Jesus confronts this assumption very directly with two questions. Notice this back in the text. I'm paraphrasing. Do you think the slain Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans? Or do you think the 18 people crushed beneath that tower were worse offenders than all of the other residents of Jerusalem? Like, guys, do you really think that? Is that your explanation for these two tragedies? And actually, there's an implied question, I think, that Jesus wanted them to get. Do you think that you are more righteous than those who have suffered because you haven't suffered like them? He gives them an emphatic answer. (laughs) He says it twice and uh, puts the answer at the very beginning. No, and I mean no. He says, no, I tell you, that's a wrong way to think about this. That is no way to walk in the face of uncertainty and the threat of your mortality. That's not the right answer. Circumstances are unreliable indicators of our spiritual condition. I mean, think about it. There are plenty of righteous people who suffer, right? Not least among them is our Savior. And then aren't there plenty of people that we might consider wicked <laughs> who prosper? If you, if you got some time, take a look at the book of Habakkuk. Circumstances are unreliable indicators of our spiritual condition. And I tell you what, I know this, but I'm regularly tempted to look at my circumstances for assurance. You know, I'm insecure just like other people and um, God is invisible, but we have his word and I have his Holy Spirit. I mean, I have all these things, but I still have those days when I'm trying to think about, am I okay? Is life okay? And I want to look to my circumstances and if they're good, that's reassuring to me. And if they're bad, it, just, it can make me more insecure rather than going to God's word and saying, what does he say is true about me completely apart from my circumstances? Now, certainly God can use my circumstances to get my attention, to do work in my life, to refine me and help me grow. But, but that is not the place to look 
if we're trying to gauge our spiritual condition. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to these folks. These tragedies didn't happen because those people were worse than those people. These tragedies happen because we live in a sin-wrecked world. Those tragedies need to speak to us about us. It needs to get our attention. It needs to wake us up and help us see differently. Here's a fact. Though you and I may not be as bad as we could be, we are in and of ourselves as bad off as everyone else. You and I need a savior as much as anybody does. It's not as if there's gradations like, boy, those people went, they really need Jesus. No, all of us, all of us share this disease of sin and all of us need Christ. It really is as if Jesus is saying, the news you brought me about someone else's tragic death needs to be news for you. And here's the big idea. Death, our mortality, the uncertainty of this broken world, it's everyone's problem. Not just those folks that experienced the tragedy. All of humanity shares three things in common. First of all, every person is made in the image of God and they possess dignity and worth as a result. Genesis 1.27. Secondly, every person is guilty of sin and spiritually separated from God by that sin apart from God's intervention. That's Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And then finally, and this is really important, every person will physically die and then face judgment. Listen to Hebrews 9, 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, that's the greater problem here. It wasn't that there was an earthly tragedy, although that's a horrible thing. We grieve that. It does make us sad and afraid. That's all true, but there's a much bigger tragedy that could be happening here. And that would be that once you've died physically, you die spiritually. You stay separated from God for all of eternity. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And the brokenness of this world gives us this little window into that reality. No one cheats death. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. And ignoring mortality will not delay its arrival. Every one of us will have an end of days. In every death, there is a reminder that the funeral bell tolls for thee. And that doesn't have to be ominous. It actually can be liberating. I read a, a great description of death by Mark Buchanan. Listen to this. Death, carefully pondered, resolutely faced, actually loses its grip on us. It's deadlock on our imaginations. It can reawaken holy wonder. 
We learn to cherish those things we often take for granted. And the temporary things of this world we often desperately seek after become to us as nothing. That's what death can do. That's what a tragedy can do. That's what a life lived in the shadow of our mortality with perspective, that's what it can do. Moses prays in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. Teach us to see this life for what it really is. Why? So that we might get a heart of wisdom. Jim Elliott says this about uh, the end of life. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. (laughs) That's good. Very insightful. So with death in mind, according to Jesus, repentance is what makes us ready. Repentance makes us ready. Now, what is this idea of Repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, technically, it's, it's a change of mind, but it's, it's bigger than that. It isn't just that we think differently about things. It's that we actually live differently in light of what we now know. So we, we see our circumstances, we see our hearts, we see our behavior, and then we make a change. And that change is with respect to sin, God, and self. It's a change of thinking and understanding about our sin, about our God, and about ourselves. And it's a turning away from an old way of life and going toward a new way of life. That's a big description of repentance. Biblically, it's turning from sinful self-rule towards surrender to God's authority. We love ruling our own lives, don't we? But repentance says, I can't trust myself. I'm not good for me. (laughs) God is good for me. So I turn toward him and I start to follow his ways. I turn away from disobedience toward obedience. I turn from a path that leads to death toward a path that leads to life. I I turn away from foolishness and I turn toward wisdom. That's what repentance is all about. Now, with regards to salvation, I know there's been, who knows, centuries of discussion and debate around the relationship between faith and repentance. And so I'll say this, that repentance does not secure salvation for us. But it is absolutely essential. We would never never place our faith in Christ without first repenting. See, we're turning away from ourselves to him. That's repentance. As we do that, that is an act of faith. And that faith placed in Christ instead of in ourselves, that is what secures us eternal life. So faith and repentance, they're like two sides of the same coin. They absolutely go together. One feeds the other. Uh, Just write these two uh, passages down. Mark 1, 14 and 15 After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel, 
okay? This is good news that he's proclaiming. And here's what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom, is God, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So according to Jesus, I need to turn away from my old way of life, from my self-rule, and I need to believe in the good news that I have a Savior. In Acts 17, so this is uh, long after the resurrection of Christ, here's what Paul says, Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent because he has fixed a day. Man, this is a timely word in light of this passage and what it's about. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We're gonna celebrate that next week. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead says we must Turn from our old ways and turn to him because he alone can deliver us from sin and death. He alone can give us life. And with that in mind, repentance is a way of life. It's not just a one and done activity. It's something that we're called to do all of the time when things are great and when they're horrible. When, when we are prospering and when we are struggling with poverty, when we experience great gain or great loss, we are called to repent. See, in either of those directions, prosperity or poverty, there is this opportunity for the flesh to go its own way. And so repentance just says, regardless of which way my circumstances are going, when I see that, I am attentive to the draw of the flesh and I turn the other way. I turn back toward God. Let me encourage you. Um, there are seven what are called penitential psalms. These are basically psalms or prayers of repentance. Um, psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. I, I wanted to read Psalm 130 to you this morning. It's brief, but just to give you a sense of what, what does a heart of repentance look like? Here it is, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, there's an acknowledgement of sin and need. But with you, there is forgiveness, great news, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. Not in my circumstances, but in his word. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you want to practice repentance, 
that's a great place to start, to read through that psalm and pray it back to God and, and begin to develop a language of repentance in terms of your conversation with God. Well, this uh, brings us to a parable. In fact, that's how Jesus punctuates this moment. He, he tells a parable and it's meant to, to model for these listeners how to think about repentance. And uh, I've just called it the root work of repentance. Look with me at verse six. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he that is the vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, this is very accessible for us. There's not a lot of complication uh, in the story. It's if we came upon a fruit tree and it didn't have any fruit on it, we would say either it's too young or there's something wrong with the tree. Fruit trees are supposed to bear fruit, right? And this one didn't. And this was planted by the owner of the vineyard. And, and understandably, he planted it to get fruit. That was his purpose in putting it there to begin with. And so having found none, he asks a perfectly rational question. Why should a fruit tree take up ground space if it isn't producing the fruit for which it was planted. And truly, it shouldn't. I mean, just like just logically, we just think if it's not doing what it was created to do, then it ought to be removed, which is a great caution for us in terms of presumption. If you and I aren't bearing the fruit, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, that we were created to bear, why should we expect the one who created us, the one who planted us in his vineyard, why should we expect him to just look the other way and dismiss it as if it didn't matter? Now in the parable, the owner decides to cut it down, but there's another character in the story, the vine dresser. He takes care of all the plants that the owner has put there and he lays out a plan to cultivate and fertilize this tree in hopes that it will do what it was created to do. He talks about root work. And that root work, that opening up the ground around the roots and applying fertilizer to that area, that, that is a picture of repentance. Mark Buchanan again says this about this root work. It's digging down to the deep hidden place. Get it? Under the ground where things are unseen. Digging down to the deep hidden place, the place of nourishment that become, that's become a place of sickness and replacing it and replacing something in the soil. 
he would say that there isn't necessarily something wrong with the roots. It, it has to do with where those roots are living day in and day out. So you open it up to the nourishment of water and you put fertilizer in there to feed those roots in hopes of change. And so it seems as though the owner complies. And isn't it interesting? I I did think about this. Jeff and I have quoted this verse every week since we got back into Luke, and I'm going to read it again, 2 Peter 3, 9. See, this parable is certainly a warning. It was a warning to Israel. You're not bearing fruit, and your time is coming near, like your mortality is coming. Better live with wisdom, but it's also a great encouragement because there's this vine dresser, and he wants to cultivate the roots of this tree so that it'll bear the fruit. And here it is, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Don't presume. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. Repentance. Earlier in Luke, gosh, we studied this months and months ago, but in Luke 3, 8, and this is also in Matthew 3, 8, Jesus says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's what we were made for. And I thought just as I wrap up, I want to give you some picture of like what kind of fruit might we expect to see? If, if we are repenting, if we're living a penitent life, here's what it might look like. First of all, we might see the fruit of righteousness, write down Philippians 1.11. And the fruit of righteousness, because we're right with God, we're free to love. And that's what Paul prays for in Philippians 1, that their love would abound. And I can tell you this, if you're not repenting, you're not loving. You don't have it in you, neither do I. Secondly, you might look for the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. We're told that as the Spirit is actively doing what the Spirit does in us and we are cooperating with Him, He begins to bear fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on. Lastly, in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, there's a reference to the fruit of light. And there it talks about the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. See, repenters live in that space of what is good and right and true, and they know that it is those things because it, they found it here in God's Word. Uh, overall, repentance is certainly done with purpose. Um, I, I really like this phrase, diligent dependence. Diligent dependence. And the idea there is that I can't conjure all of this up on my own. I do play a part. I cooperate with the activity of God. But more than anything in the world, I am dependent upon him to do his work in me and through me. And uh, just jot this down, John 15, 5. Here it is. This is a beautiful picture of repentance, root work, and fruitfulness. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Whoever abides, that's the diligent dependence. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's a promise. That's something that you can count on even in the face of your mortality. And then he finishes by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Encouraging and sobering words. You and I will never face the tragedies of this life, the difficulties of this life, the uncertainties of a global pandemic. We'll never face those things in and of ourselves. We will need to abide in Christ, repent as a way of life, and trust in him. With that in mind, with the teaching of Christ in mind, I want to uh, lead you into a reflective time we call So What? And this is really where we just uh, honestly ask God to show us how we ought to respond to his word And uh, that might be something very dramatic. It might be something very small. It might just be a, a little reaffirmation. It might be a reminder. But whatever it might be, we want to respond to what God has shown us in his word. I know of two things that will lead you and I to repentance in the shadow of mortality. And I want to mention these two to you and then ask you to prayerfully consider which one God might want you to focus on today and maybe in the days ahead. First of all, the first thing that will lead us to repentance is the conviction of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit shows us those places that are out of alignment. He shows us graciously, lovingly shows us those places where we're going our own way. And he calls us to turn, to repent. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, Paul talks about godly sorrow. That's, that's the response. That's the right response to the conviction of the Lord. So the conviction of the Lord can lead us to repentance. Also, and I love this, the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. And there I, I just wrote down gratitude. You know, I, I, better than anybody, can tell you all of the reasons why God ought to just kick me out and get rid of me. And when I think about that, I am overcome by his kindness. That he would love me unconditionally, even on my worst of days. And I tell you what, when I get into that place, when my mind is thinking in that way, I want to repent. I want to turn away from my own way because I know that his way is the best for me. Repentance is always a right response to life in a broken world. And so ask the Lord right now, how might he be leading you into repentance? Take a moment and prayerfully consider that and then I'll pray for us to wrap up.